Hi, anyone and everyone. Welcome to Have You Heard About This Case. My name is Sam. And my name is Kelly. Today, I am going to bring you a very brutal case. So please consider this your content warning for crimes involving children. It is a pretty well-known case in the true crime community, but it's even with that, I would say it's definitely still one of the more shocking and brutal cases. But let's start with something a little lighter. Kelly, what's your question for us today? Okay, so my question for today is, what was your favorite movie from childhood? Like, what movie did your family always want to watch? Um, I'm not sure if it was the whole family, but it was definitely me. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with Free Willy when I was a kid. Oh. Like, beyond obsessed with Free Willy when I was a kid. <laughs> that is very incredibly specific. I feel like 90s movie. Yeah. Because like, I definitely remember that. Let's see, I had the VHS and it, I played that so much that it broke and my dad had to go to the video store to rent a new copy for me yes yes he did (laughs) you gotta go you gotta go yeah i was i was obsessed (laughs) yeah yeah we um i watched it first at a friend's house but it is still now one of my favorite enduring movies of all time the princess bride oh of course Mm-hmm. That's also a very 90s answer. Yes. And that, that I think that might be Ash's answer. That's my favorite. Would be The Princess Bride. It is my favorite movie. I love it so much. Yeah, there, there was definitely a rotation of those two in my house growing mm-hmm. up. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's, let's get into today's case quickly because it is going to be a long one. This is definitely going to be a, a longer episode for us. Um, but I really didn't want to split it into two. Mm-hmm. But I um, this so, this case uh, demands it. I think a longer episode. Yes, there's a whole lot to it, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. there's a lot that some podcasts cover and some don't. And I tried to do a, a a blend of of my own of what I feel is important to the conversation. Yeah. But because there's just truly so much, you could so easily make a whole series out of this case. I agree. I agree. But I'll let you get into it. So today, yeah, yeah. Today we're going to talk about the Girl Scout camp murders in 1977 in Locust Grove, Oklahoma. This camp was owned by Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. And the on-site director, Barbara Day, lived on the campgrounds with her husband, Richard Day. And so they're the ones who really ran all of the operations on site. Mm -hmm. And in 1977, Camp Scott was about 410 acres. So it it was a lot of space. That's, yeah, that's hefty. Yeah. But the camp actually started in 1928. So it was much smaller. But over the years, more and more land was purchased to expand and it became very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years before this, in 1957, it's actually estimated that 4,500 girls attended Camp Scott that summer. Wow. That's a lot of girls. 
That's that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, and and we know in 1977 that the sessions for each kid was about two weeks long, and mm-hmm. that's that's a pretty good amount of time. I I grew up in an area where there's a ton of summer camps. They ranged anywhere from mm-hmm. like a week. Some lasted a month. Some lasted all three months. So I I think two mm-hmm. weeks is fairly yeah. standard. I agree. Yeah. But there were some kids as young as eight who were attending Camp Scott. So they were they were wow. quite young. That's very young, yes. Mm-hmm. That summer camp was just starting and they were doing what they needed to get open, get ready to be open for the season. And as I mentioned earlier, Camp Scott is a Girl Scout camp. And many of its campers came from Tulsa and the suburbs of Tulsa. So most people were fairly local to the area. Right. And I think that's fairly typical for a summer camp as well. And my best way of describing this camp as a whole is kind of typical, at least from my experience. Mm -hmm. It was in the middle of the woods in Mays County. And there were multiple campsites on the property with each campsite having seven to eight tents. And these aren't like your mm-hmm. standard, like you go camping with your family camping tents. These were, these were bigger structures, but in reality, they are still just tents. They were built mm-hmm. up onto these wooden platforms that were 12 to 14 feet, 12 by 14 feet. So it's, it's a pretty sizable platform. And then there was yeah. thick canvas that created the tent with a second canvas piece on top of it to protect from rain leaking it. But that's kind of all it really was. There were four little cots <laughs> inside, but the rest you were required to bring on your own, whether it's sleeping bag or pillows. But it was just mm-hmm. platform, tent, cots. That's it. Yeah. The way that the campsites are set up, because there are multiples, so you only have six to seven tents with four cots in it. So obviously that's not the whole camp. So Mm -hmm. one tent within those campsites was designated as a counselor tent. Usually there were two to three counselors in each section, in each campsite, and they often shared a tent with each other. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. At least to me, it does. Oh, no. I was just going to say, you get to thinking that you have four cots in each one, and then you have seven to eight of them, that you probably are up there with needing a counselor or two. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say a minimum of two, at least, Mm -hmm. if not potentially more. I could very understandably think more as well. But right. also, this is 1977. There's a, a very different mindset. I was, yeah. we, we're looking at this as if this is 2023. We know about crime more than we ever have before. 1977, mm-hmm. yeah. they didn't have as many people looking after kids as we might nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And what's kind of crazy to me with all of this is when I was a kid, I actually went to a Girl Scout camp that was exactly like this one in wisconsin like 
to a T. Oh. The tents were exactly the same. It, it, it was eerie looking at images of this case, because if you were to tell me that that was the same camp I went to, I probably would believe you because it, it looked that similar mm-hmm. to where I went. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I only went to Girl Scout like we did a little bit of camping. But as soon as we hit like the rougher camping, I was like, I need to go home. <laughs> Wasn't brave enough. I excuse me. I, I loved it. I went when I believe I was 11 and 12. I went two years in a row. Oh, yeah. And it was it was one of my friends at the time. She had gone and for her second year invited me to come along. And mm-hmm. I loved it so much that I went back the year after that. And it's it's pretty much the same. Like even the activities, mm-hmm. the way that the days seem to be structured. And again, it is a Girl Scout camp. So they they could be mm-hmm. kind of a uniform standard for the camps. Yeah. It, you're right. You're right. They could have been. But before the camp officially opened for the season, the staff and the counselors arrived early to start their prep and their training. These counselors were most frequently teenagers who previously were campers. Oh. Oh. And that's how it was at my camp, too. That was exactly the same thing. My counselors mm-hmm. were, like, 16 years old. Okay. Uh, and with them coming early, this gave them some good time to kind of ha- do bonding on their own, in addition to their prep and training, before all of the younger kids arrived. So I'm sure that was something that they looked forward to. Mm-hmm. But during this prep time, there were a few bizarre things that happened before the summer session started. One morning in April, the counselors were gathering for a meeting and there was a box of donuts that was set out for them. But when they opened the box of donuts, all of the donuts were actually gone and there were two notes left inside of the box. And they were left on little paper, similar to like a pocket notebook. Mm -hmm. And on one of the pieces of paper, it said, we are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Oh, and that's that's just truly horrifying. Like, and this at this point was out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. But then the second note. Imagine. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, imagine being like 16 years old and reading that. Like, is Mm -hmm. this a joke? Or exactly what is happening oh yeah and there was a second note in the box as well and all that was on this piece of paper was the word kill written multiple times mm. like scribbled all over the paper oh and it was 15 year old counselor who found it named michelle oh. hoffman she immediately took these notes to the spring coordinator barbara Armstead, who assumed it was a prank and i i understand that there's nothing else in front of you to make you assume that there was anything beyond hey look at this it's gonna be funny we're gonna eat all these donuts and leave this behind right right but because she thought it was a prank she just threw the notes in the trash Mm. Uh, oh no 
Yeah. And then also within April, I don't know if this was right around the same time, but I do believe it was a little bit before the notes were left. There were reports Mm -hmm. of a couple of the tents being ransacked and some items were stolen. So what we know was stolen was a couple different pairs of eyeglasses. And I can tell you, as somebody who has worn glasses since the age of six, it would be awful if someone stole my glasses. Oh, oh I would hit the roof. I, like, I'd be physically sick without wearing my glasses. Not just, like, vision impaired. I'd be physically sick without them. So... If I knew, if someone had stolen my glasses, I would be sent home. I, I wouldn't be able to stay at camp. At, at the very minimum, you would be totally aware that somebody had taken your glasses. Yeah. who Who's going to take prescription glasses? You know? Yeah. That's odd. That's very odd. And when Barbara Umstead was asked about this in relation to the notes being found, she says she wasn't aware of this incident until after she had thrown out the notes. So mm-hmm. once she learned about this, she's, she had the reaction of like, I would not have just tossed them out if I knew that there was someone stealing stuff on camp on the campsite. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in when I kind of think about it in my true crime brain and just the differences between 1977 and 2023 i feel like even if the notes were prank and if i was convinced they were prank i probably wouldn't have tossed them out but i i think that the the times and the mindset were just so different between now and then i yeah i agree i agree because like if you think about it too like when you were in girl scout camp i don't know about you but we went on a camping trip that was associated with our school and it was about a week long and we, we weren't intense like this, but there was a whole shtick, a whole lore about like, Oh, one of the cabins is haunted. Oh yeah. And like the, the older kids who were the counselors, like now that I think about it, the older kids would make a whole show of like, dressing up one of the cabinet cabins not cabinets one of the cabins so it looked basically like like this like ransacked like a big prank you know like it so i i kind of see why especially if it was 1977 you would be like oh this is probably just part of you know some kind of wild prank they're running this year i don't know yeah and i remember this was a a different time but i was with girl scouts um when i was about probably seven or eight and we went on a weekend kind of camping trip and my mom Mm -hmm. was there so i think it was like mother daughter type of camping trip and we Uh. all stayed in this big lodge And it was like this just big, massive room. And we all just had our sleeping bags lined up filling this room. And I do definitely remember like ghost stories from the older kids talking about a haunting at that campground um, and definitely trying to scare us little kids. Right. Right. 
And even ours went as far as, like, I believe, like, this was obviously <clears throat> a little while ago. I'm quite <laughs> youthful. But I remember it the prank going as far as it being, like, the cabin was not only haunted, but a murder had happened in one of the cabins. Yeah. And, of course, like, that's the, what the older kids would say. And that's why I, this case, we talked about it just a little bit before we came on air, but... I, ever since I've heard this story, I've not been able to get it out of my head. Yeah, and I'm the same exact way. And then I I really wanted to cover this one because I can imagine myself at this camp with these girls because I was yeah. there at a different one. You were. Like, it, you, yeah, you were I at this camp. I can picture just walking around because I did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can remember just the, the place you're describing. Like, I absolutely think it was a standard Girl Scout thing. Mm-hmm. So then just a couple weeks before the Girl Scouts arrived for that summer session, a couple of the counselors said that they were actually followed back to their tents by somebody with a flashlight. Ooh. And that that's truly scary. I can understand the notes being a prank and maybe that there's a counselor or somebody else ransacking tents who is affiliated with the camp. Like, I can see all of that Mm -hmm. stuff being possible. Mm -hmm. But when you have somebody following you and an actual figure that you're not familiar with, that's terrifying. That's very scary. And there's no real reports of a description of this person. But another counselor said that they saw a man standing outside of their tent, kind of close to the same time. And I'd like to reiterate, this is a Girl Scout camp. There are very, very few men who are even on Mm -hmm. the campgrounds themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. So seeing a man there, if you, you probably know the it, couple of men that work on the campus, especially if you're a counselor. So seeing absolutely. a different one, it, that's right. kind of evident that they don't belong. Mm-hmm. It would immediately pop out to you. But one of the men who I, I did mention earlier, Richard Day, he was married to the camp director. He was on the grounds and he actually saw a man walking on the campgrounds holding a large plastic jug. So obviously Richard approached him and said that you can't be on here. It's private property and that he had to leave. And it seems like there was no argument. The guy was like, okay, he, he left. Uh-huh. But then one last thing before the summer session started, and this was hours before the summer session started, a maintenance worker who was one of the other couple of men who worked on the campground discovered that there was a four to five inch square cut out of one of the tents. There's there's no explanation to this. It's just a little square cut out. And we, we have no idea what this is about. I don't even know what tent it was. It just, it happened. Right. 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 We just know it to be true. And I don't know how much of this was reported after the crimes that we're going to talk about shortly here, 
or if this was all reported and the dots just weren't connected and and not there wasn't one person who heard all of these details to realize that something's going on here Mm -hmm. right something's not right yeah so then on june 12th was the start of the summer session Families were meeting in Tulsa to drop off their daughters to take the bus to the camp. And I'm sure this is a very emotional moment for a lot of kids and their parents, and especially the younger kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I got dropped off at my camp, so I never really went through this bus process. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the the basic setup is that they get dropped off and the counselors are there to help them check in and they're, they're really there to help comfort them because it's their first time meeting the person that's going to essentially be taking care, taking care of them. And so the parents get that reassurance and the kids get that reassurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michelle Hoffman, who was a junior counselor met 10 year old camper, Denise Milner and her mother. Denise was having a really hard time and actually no longer wanted to go to Camp Scott. She she initially was very excited. She and a handful of her friends actually sold Girl Scout cookies so that they could afford to go to Camp Scott together. But unfortunately, her friends Mm -hmm. ended up pulling out. So Denise would end up going alone and she just she didn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. Denise's mom really tried to convince her to keep going because her mm. attitude was you're going to make friends like they may not be the your original friends you intended on going with but that doesn't mean that you might not mm-hmm. make potentially lifelong friends right yeah absolutely um so she basically made it totally see yeah it's it's easy to understand how a parent would want to push yeah. their kid to do that yeah absolutely because my you know when I was scared to go camp. Like, my parents tried. Like, they were like, you're going to make me friends. And I was like, I know all the people I need to know. Right. Um, quick question. Mm-hmm. Michelle. Michelle was the one who found those notes, wasn't she? Um, let me double check that. Michelle I thought that name was familiar. Hoffman. Let me roll up. Um, where did I put? Yes. 15-year-old counselor. Oh, yeah. 15-year-old counselor named Michelle Hoffman. Yeah, she found the notes and took them to Barbara Olmstead. So, wow, Michelle Hoffman was really having a time here. Yeah, and I didn't, I was so, like, deep into my notes that I didn't connect the two names. Because there's going to be another Michelle that we're going to meet in a little bit here. Oh, okay. So I didn't even connect that. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's just a lot to put i mean at least like she was like thriving as a junior counselor you know and like helping her feel better about going to camp and everything like that's so sweet and she's only 15 oh and she was she was a great counselor from everything that i've read and seen she Mm -hmm. sat with denise and her mom and denise and her mom basically made a deal where it's like if you call home i'll come and get you Mm-hmm. And so when Michelle sat down with Denise and her mom, they basically explained this plan. And Denise promised her that uh, Michelle promised Denise 
that if she came up to her and wanted to make that call home, Michelle would make that happen. So she gave them Mm -hmm. a lot of reassurance Mm -hmm. that if you don't want to be here, it's okay, but it's a big thing to try Mm -hmm. and we encourage you to try. Sure. And Denise agreed to this. So once all the buses arrived at Camp Scott, the campers went to their separate campsites and met their tent mates. And when I went for two summers, um, when I was 11 and 12, I was on the older side of the campers for the most part. I think it was Mm -hmm. maybe like 13, maybe 14 Mm -hmm. was kind of the oldest, but I, I was up there a little bit more. And one big difference about my camp versus Camp Scott is kind of the living situation. As I said, I stayed in the tents, Mm -hmm. but we had three different types of sites. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a little lodge, which essentially was dorms. And that was for the youngest kids. Mm -hmm. Those were for the eight and nine year olds, the, the really the youngest ones. Yeah. And then there were yurts, which were like a tent, but it was a bit more solidly built. Um, I, I never mm-hmm. went in one. I've just seen photos of them because they were kind of off in a different area of camp that we didn't go to. But mm-hmm. I think it's like a canvas and plastic sighting that really created mm-hmm. walls. Right. Um, but it was still up on a wooden platform. And then the last ones where I was, was the same tents that we described earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of, maybe that's a change that came to Girl Scout camps after this incident. But the youngest kids, and Denise was part of the youngest kids, did stay in those canvas tents. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm pretty sure all of the kids, like they didn't have the options at Camp right, Scott, I think it right. just everyone just stayed of, in tents. Uh-huh. You just sort of stayed. Re- I mean, that makes sense. You know, again, it's the 70s, like... Uh, it was the 70s. And we were in camp. The, exactly. We were in camp tents. And Denise was in Tent 7 of the Kiowa campsite. And so each campsite had different names, and they were all named after um, Native American names. Mm-hmm. Um, much of the area surrounding the camp was native land, so they that was a way that they chose to honor mm-hmm. the natives. That's that's cool. That's cool. And also continuing on the tradition of camping and doing work with the land and nature, you know. Mm-hmm. My camp, I, I don't remember the name of my mm-hmm. campsite, but my camp was named okay. after natives as well. Uh, I went to Camp Nawakwa. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wouldn't even know how to spell that. But also, it's exactly I think that's as you would think. Too. Sound it out. It's exactly that. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's mm-hmm. <laughs> very similar. Yeah, I I think that's that's fairly common too. Yeah, mm-hmm. in, in Girl Scout. Yeah, we yes. were. Our camp was um, near Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. So it was like okay, Northwest yeah. Wisconsin, a lot of native tribes in that area. And then over the border into Minnesota, there's, mm-hmm. there's a handful as well. Mm-hmm. And the way that the, the Kiowa campsite was very specifically set up is there were eight tents. So the first one was the counselor tent. 
and the rest of them kind of created a semicircle to and lined up around a center building, which was the bathroom and the showers. Okay. So as you enter the site, there's the counselors and then the other seven behind just are kind of create this semicircle. And she had three tent mates. And there was another one that was supposed to be in their tent. I, there's a couple different reports. There was one report in the Oklahoman that said that she didn't want to stay in that tent because as tent seven, the last one in the line, it was surrounded by woods essentially, except for that one tent next Mm -hmm. to him. And she said that she got too Mm -hmm. scared and asked to switch. But I also saw a ton of reports that say it was a clerical error that accidentally put her in a different tent. So I don't really know, but Either way, she was not there when she was originally supposed to be. Right, right. But the other girls that were in the tent, uh, the first one was Lori Farmer, who was eight years old. And she'd actually be turning nine while she was at Camp Scott because her birthday was June 19th. She was from Mm. Tulsa and her family says that she was incredibly smart. Uh, Her dad talked about a memory of when she was 16 months old, she spontaneously would recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Wow. (laughs) So she she had a lot of, like, cognitive abilities at a very young age. Yeah, that's not even a year and a half old. Yeah, and they said by the time she was two, she was putting together 100-piece puzzles on her own. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then she even skipped the second grade. So she clearly is an incredibly smart young girl. Mm-hmm. And her family actually had planned on visiting Camp Scott for her birthday on the 19th as a surprise for her. And I just think that is like the cutest thing. But... That's so cute. Yeah. Yeah. So then the other girl who was also sharing a tent with Denise and Lori was Michelle Gousset. And she was from a suburb of Tulsa, Broken Arrow, and she was nine years old. Her family says that she really loved sports and very specifically soccer and that she loved being part of the Girl Scouts. And she had actually attended Camp Scott the previous year and was excited to go back for her second year. Mm -hmm. And she'd actually also be spending her birthday at Camp Scott because her birthday was June 22nd, just three days after Lori's. Mm -hmm. And when she left for camp, she was incredibly adamant to her family that they need to take care of her African violets. (laughs) And if you know about African violets, they're a fickle plant. So having a nine to ten year old like taking care of it like that's that shows a lot of responsibility yeah and she loved her plants Mm -hmm. and so it was it was like a big thing as she was leaving like you take care of them they better Mm -hmm. be fine when i come home (laughs) (laughs) oh so after getting assigned to their campsites and kind of just getting settled and meeting their tent mates they had dinner in the dining hall around 5 30 p.m 
And during dinner, or right as they were leaving dinner, it started to storm and pour down rain. And when I was in camp, literally this exact same thing happened to me. I was in the farthest campsite from the dining hall. And I definitely remember running through the mud and down very slippery hills to try to get to the shelter of our tents. Mm -hmm. And so I can very much relate to this moment with these girls. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, imagine them all. But yeah. Yeah. And obviously, like after dinner, they're not going to immediately go to bed. So the counselors had to come up with something to occupy their time when they couldn't really be outside in in the woods during the storm so they encouraged all of the campers to write letters home about their first day of camp and we actually have all three of their letters so Lori's letter um and to kind of preface this one she is one of five kids oh so her letter says Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy, we are getting ready for bed. It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them, and it started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We are all writing letters now because there's nothing else to do. With love, Lori. (laughs) <laughs> it's like it just a like the perfect little kid yeah letter yeah so then michelle's letter she wrote to her aunt so it's dear aunt karen how are you i'm fine and i'm writing from camp we can't go outside because it's storming me and my tent mates are in the last tent in our unit my tent mates are denise milner and Lori farmer my room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who loved African violets. So yeah, I guess so. she, yeah, so Probably she loves purple. Happy. Yeah. And then we have Denise's letter. She says, "Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glinda, Lori, and Michelle." Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Oh, God. So, unfortunately, there was not really any time period, it seems like, where Denise actually wanted to be there. Yeah. She did give it a try. She did listen to her mom and and the counselors. But, unfortunately, it just, she didn't want to be there at all. Yeah, yeah. I can relate. <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, it's it's very understandable. And she was so young. Absolutely. She was 10 years old. So young. That's a very young time to be away from your parents for yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And she even says that in her letter, two weeks. I don't want to stay at camp for two mm-hmm. weeks. Yeah. I, I fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And after dinner and after writing the letters, there was a short story time before there was bedtime. But then at bedtime, Denise did go up to a counselor and say that she did want to call her mom and wanted to go home. And 
The counselor told Denise that she'll help her call home, but she encouraged her to do it in the morning. At that point, it was already kind of late. Mm-hmm. And Denise agreed to this. She That, I think, comforted her that mm-hmm. in a handful of hours, she'd be able she... to talk to her mom. Right. So lights out in the Kiowa campsite was 10 to 10.30 p.m. So everyone was in their respective tents. They were supposed to just try to go to bed at this point. Mm-hmm. But then at 1230, one of the Kiowa counselors, Carla Willite, she woke up to the sound of some giggles. And this isn't necessarily uncommon. Yeah. She discovered that a few girls were over by the bathrooms, just making some noise and giggling. Mm-hmm. Oh, just being little girls. Yeah, exactly. And she told them to go back to bed and headed back to the tent herself. Then at 1.30 a.m., she woke up again to some more giggling. And this time it was coming from tent four. So she got out of bed, walked to tent four, told them they need to go back to bed. And on her walk back to her own tent, remember, she's essentially like tent zero in the count because she's the counselor tent. But she's, yeah, also. And exactly. Yeah. And on her way back to her own tent, she started to hear these low, guttural moaning sounds. And it was coming from the woods. So she shined her flashlight on it right away. She didn't see anything. And the moaning stopped. So this is something that I have a lot of mixed feelings about. Because very, very scary. It's very scary, but I also think you can very easily trick your brain into thinking that was some sort of animal that you probably startled off with your light. Yes, yes. And and especially... So that's never been like an explanation in here, but I I understand that. I get it. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're like, what, a 15, 16-year-old girl? Like, it'd be easy to write that off because you're maybe a little scared, too. Like, exactly. I think her fear is probably a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think she was a little bit older, but I don't think that really adds to the narrative. I think that what you're saying is completely right. She was still very young. Um, I've seen reports that she was like 18 to 20. So that's that's still still, that's still very young. I think your point stands regardless. That's very. Yeah, it's scary. I think that's scary no matter what age you are. And it's super Mm -hmm. easy to trick your brain into being like, okay, well, that was probably nothing. Like, I shined my light on it, and it went away. And exactly. I'm not going to worry too much about it and scare myself. Because I'm the counselor, mm-hmm. I, I and I don't... completely yeah. agree. Mm-hmm. She did end up hearing the, sa- the sound a couple times throughout the night. And I'm not sure if... This happened when she was on her walk back from tent four, or if she had looked out her tent again at a different time. But she said that she saw a very dim light coming from the woods. And again, she shined her own flashlight on it, but saw nothing. And I kind of get this as well. And maybe I'm coming up with excuses for her, but I... Your mind can play tricks on you in the dark. Yes, absolutely. Oh, 
anyway, yes, in the dark, especially, your mind can easily play tricks on you. Yeah, and I, I've said this many times in our other episodes. I grew up in the middle of the woods. I grew up mm-hmm. in a place where it is dark at night. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I totally see this as a very viable excuse. Mm-hmm. I agree. But a couple of other campers and counselors from different units and different campsites also reported seeing a dim light near the Kiowa campsite. So this really kind of proves that this wasn't in Carla's head. But mm-hmm. in the moment, she doesn't know this. Yeah. And another nearby campsite said that they also had heard screams around 2 a.m. And that they heard a girl crying for her mom. Mm. And why I don't, while I don't really think that this next part is the most viable excuse, I also kind of get it. But these campers, they brought it up to their counselors. And the counselors really kind of said nothing was wrong. So I think there's either two things. They just didn't want to get involved. It's not their campsite. It's not their kids that they're taking care of. Mm-hmm. Or they assumed that the camper was really homesick and was probably crying in her tent. Right. Uh. And so I can understand that. But I, I do think that in my personal opinion, get up and check. Right. But I understand that argument at least a little bit. Right, right. Like, they probably wrote it off, you know, like, maybe they had heard, like, there was a camper who was definitely homesick, and maybe you think, yeah. Nightmare, something like that. Yeah. And so, they also, they don't know about these other things going on as well. Like, that's another part of it, is I had to constantly remind myself no one knows about all of these other pieces that we've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. None of them. None of them know. And then another thing that was reported by a camper that happened that same night um, who was in tent six of the Kiowa campsite. So the tent right next to these three girls. She said that she woke up to a man looking from the front flaps of the tent at her. For a moment, they stared at each other, but then the man just closed the flap and walked towards tent seven. And that I can't even imagine. Oh my God, that must be so scary. And imagine that like, maybe this man, like if she hadn't been awake. Exactly. Like, And I understand her being terrified to not want to get out of bed and not want to exit her tent. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, again, if you're at a Girl Scout camp and there is an unknown man staring in mm-hmm. your tent in the middle in of the, the night. In the middle of the night. Yeah. Ugh. It's so scary. So then on the morning of June 13th, the first morning of camp, mm-hmm. Carla, one of the counselors, had woken up at 6 a.m. with her alarm. She decided she wanted to get up early and take a shower. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she was groggy from being woken up multiple times from the giggling and the moaning in the woods. Mm-hmm. So she started to head towards the showers, half asleep. And she noticed that partially off the trail, she saw a sleeping bag. 
her thoughts were that she would pick it up to try to dry it out because it was left on the ground during the storm the night before. But once she got a bit closer, she could see that a young girl was partially inside of the sleeping bag. And it was pretty apparent to her immediately that this girl was dead. There's a a documentary called Keeper of the Ashes that Carla was interviewed for. And I I do recommend this documentary. Um, It... It had a lot of people who were very involved in this case interviewed. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I haven't watched and that Car- It's on Hulu. I do recommend it. Ooh, okay. I'm in. And one thing, I know you and I were going to talk about this a little bit later, but the person who mm-hmm. helped create this documentary was Kristen Chenoweth. And she was actually supposed to attend Camp Scott that summer but she got sick and had to like cancel just before leaving. Wow. Yeah. She brought, I Um, remember us both connecting and talking about that because she had just recently created this documentary series. I think. mm -hmm. Yes. It was very recently. In the last couple of years here. Mm -hmm. Um, And she actually went to go walk the grounds. The camp is, is no longer operating. We'll get more into those details a bit later. But she walked the grounds of the camp and um, talked a lot wow. about how, what her excitement was for going to camp. And I believe it, she said in there she actually knew uh, Michelle Gousset because they both were from Broken Arrow. And wow. they went to school together. They just weren't super close friends. Right. But they knew each other from school. Oh. But in this documentary, Carla is interviewed and it's kind of hard to watch her interview because it it seems so clear how much this changed her life. And you can truly tell that she unfortunately blames herself for not doing more, especially when she started hearing those noises and seeing that dim light. Mm -hmm. But she she recounts her initial thoughts kind of in that moment when she first discovered the body and I don't know if she immediately recognized who it was but she tried to rationalize what she was seeing and she thought that maybe a camper had gotten up in the middle of the night potentially scared of the storm or or being homesick and ran out of their tent into the dark and hit their head on a tree that ended up killing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, that seems like a little like, why would a kid run out of their tent in the middle of the night? But mm-hmm. imagine what's going through her head. Mm-hmm. That that's something that I'm sure she's never had experience with in her life. In addition, she's never had training in how to process Mm-mm. what she was seeing. Mm-hmm. So, she tried to just piece anything together to make something that was at least semi-logical. Mm-hmm. And that's just how our brains work. That's what they want to do. Right. Right. And I, I feel like there's like two camps of people when trying to process an extreme tragedy that's like this. Someone who tries to find a quote unquote natural explanation or an explanation that has a cause and effect that's mm-hmm. caused by an accident. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other side who wants to hold somebody accountable for a tragedy and and wants 
a physical person to have to suffer the consequences for what they did. Right. And like you said before, just to connect the dots. Exactly. And it's, it's, you want a tragedy like this happening. You don't want it to be accidental because you don't want that to be like a reoccurring thing. But if it's somebody and you can catch them, you can arrest them and put them in prison. And then that can never happen again. And I, I think both paths of thinking are very natural. And to me, it seems like Carla was much more on the natural path through her shock and grief in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. So Carla then goes to her fellow fellow counselors, since there were two other counselors for this unit. Mm-hmm. And she, this makes me feel like she didn't recognize who was who she saw on the trail because mm-hmm. she immediately asked those counselors to do a head count of all of their girls. Are these counselors she is asking part of her her tent people or is she asking yes, all the, of Kiowa. the counselors? Kiowa. Okay. Okay. Nope. Just her, t- at least in, in in this beginning stage, because they were right, right. there in right. that general area. So she went to them right. immediately, said, do a head count. Um, <laughs> of like, the... let's. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get this figured out. Mm-hmm. And then she, and, and, while they're doing their head count, they discover that all of the girls from tent seven are gone. And not only were they gone, and I'm not sure how immediately this was noticed because i think they were just trying to very quickly look but the basically the whole interior of their tent was covered in blood oh uh and so carl what a nightmare oh, go ahead. oh i just oh, I know what a, a, a crazy nightmare like this this was like the joke that the counselors played on us like the extreme but of course like remember i was there in the 90s so like I say it could have stemmed from like, something like this. Exactly. It was like that kind of extreme joke and it's like this is not a joke. This is a real life nightmare we've woken up to. Absolutely. So once they determine that all of the girls from Tent 7 are gone, Carla immediately runs to the camp director, Barbara Day, and her husband. And her husband, Richard, he was actually an ER nurse. So the moment he heard what Carla was saying, he bolted straight out the door. He was the mm-hmm. first one out there because he, mm-hmm. he had the expertise. Right. Um, he was probably thinking, you know, what can I do? Can, can I help. help somebody? Yeah. Can, who can I help? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he was the first to reach the trail and saw the body of the young girl. And... He immediately could tell that, unfortunately, there was no helping her. And there's a couple mixed reports about this. But what I think is the most commonly reported is he was the one who actually discovered that in the sleeping bags. So so Denise was kind of partially laying out of one sleeping bag, but there were actually two sleeping bags and curled up in the bottom of the other two were the other two girls from tent seven. And there's in the documentary, they, they mention that no one really checked on these girls. 
once investigators were there and we'll get more into the investigation in a little bit, but there was a comment made in the documentary and I don't remember if it was a reporter or an investigator, but saying like, why don't you open them up? You should, maybe they were alive, but I, I have the feeling that Richard did because most of the reports said that he was the one that discovered there were the other two girls there. Right. But maybe yeah. he like realized it and then didn't touch anything else. I, yeah. I have the feeling that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But that documentary made it very sound like no one had even checked if these girls were alive. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like if you have an ER nurse on scene. Exactly. You should probably trust what what they're saying. That's what I'm thinking. But it, right. you, you, you see kind of multiple explanations of what happened here mm-hmm. and there, there's going to be a lot of things throughout this investigation where you're going to kind of get annoyed of how things were handled but mm-hmm. also remind yourself it was 1977 the technology right. was not where it's at today where we just know different things now mm-hmm. but by 7 30 a.m the police were on site Mm-hmm. And the camp was just starting for the day for hundreds of other girls Ugh. who were attending camp that summer. And oh Carla, along with the other counselors, really had to act fast, especially when it came to the Kiowa, Kiowa unit. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want anyone seeing these girls. Right. Right. They wanted they, It was really important to them to make sure that none of these girls went home with a visual of what had happened to these three. Mm-hmm. Oh. So they came up with this plan to kind of act angry at the girls for them staying up and giggling all night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they made this plan to quote unquote punish them um, mm-hmm. by going on a long morning walk that was unplanned. And they, they did like a, a scavenger hunt along this walk that took them in the complete opposite direction of the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Oh. And imagine Carla and the other counselors having to keep high spirits to keep these oh, other God. kids busy and happy and enjoying their camp life mm-hmm. while knowing what had happened. Right. Like, oh, God, I can't imagine that. It's haunting to think about that. It, it, it like, just, like, hurts when I, when I yeah. think about it, of just, like, what that had to feel like. And they just kind of had this awful feeling in their gut the whole time, I would, I would assume, mm-hmm. while keeping a smile on their face. Yeah. And just, like, a terrible fear. Mm-hmm. Like for your, for the rest of the campers, for your own self, uh, I can't imagine that. And you're, you're just trying to make sure that none of these little girls go home uh, having imprinted a crime scene on them, you know? Exactly. Of their friends. Yeah. So while Carla and the other counselors were out with all of the other girls from the camp, Barbara and Richard Day were trying to organize buses to get all of the other campers back home into their families immediately. Mm -hmm. 
So by 10 a.m., charter busers were arriving to take the remaining girls back to Tulsa, where their parents could then pick them up. They didn't let any of the campers know what was happening. And so they were all very confused on not even 24 hours into their camp. They're being sent home. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of this, the news had already been called. One of the 911 operators actually called a friend of theirs who was a reporter and he was one of the first people on the scene. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. And supposedly, from what I'm understanding, the 911 dispatcher was wanting to get the news out for danger purposes and this person being mm-hmm. out there. But they didn't know that this was a murder at this point. And so I, I don't I don't really know. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. But and again, this was just a different time. Mm-hmm. Like right now, we really try to keep a lot out of the press early on. But right. it that wasn't necessarily the case back then. Mm-hmm. But because of that, this hit the news so fast. Mm-hmm. And while kids are on their way back to Tulsa, parents are obviously being notified to come pick your kid up. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know anything else they just know wow. that something happened at camp scott and three girls mm-hmm. died <sighs> so eventually the parents of the victims were notified mm-hmm. I-, I wouldn't necessarily say in a timely manner oh, um God. but that day they were notified but they were not given any explanation nothing wow. they said an accident happened that's it Wow. And yeah, it like it just it blows my mind. And there's there's a couple things with this. So they were told an accident, but no no details whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then the news was also initially saying an accident, but because there was no additional information given out, the parents who were told to meet to pick up your kids, they didn't know if their kids were getting off the bus. Oh, God. because the kids hadn't been identified. So oh. there were parents showing up there hoping to see their kids again. Oh. Even though the, the parents of the three victims were notified, no one else knew anything. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, you're just you're just going there and hoping. Against all hope that you're your child is going to come off that bus. I, Oh God, that's always what yeah, I, I think can't about. imagine that. Yeah. Cause we're so conditioned these days to mass shootings and mm-hmm. them happening to younger people, which is horrific. Like we shouldn't be conditioned to that. But one of the first things I always think of is those parents. Like I've, I've never wanted to be a parent myself, but I can't imagine having to stand there just in a parking lot, just hoping that your baby gets off the bus and you don't know if they will. Right. Like, and I remember when I was in high school, we had a a very massive lockdown at my Mm -hmm. school. We were locked down from 11 a.m. to, I think, like 4, 4.30 
Wow. Um, we had SWAT teams come in and everyone had to be searched and every room had to be searched. And it turns out it was nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, my mom worked at my school. I was, I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And my dad worked essentially across the street. Mm-hmm. And my dad, like, he, he obviously could tell something was happening. There's SWAT teams showing up to the right. school. Right. But he had no way of knowing that me and my mom were fine. Right. Oh, God. And, like, I can't even imagine what could have been going through his head in that moment. And mm-hmm. he, we haven't really talked about it in, like, super depth because it turns out everything was totally fine. Yeah. It was false reports that caused this lockdown. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't even imagine what was going through his head with one of his daughters and his wife being in the yeah. school. Absolutely. And, like, I, I compare this to that moment a lot. Mm-hmm. But, oh, God. So horrifying. But one of the reasons the parents didn't get a timely notification of their children's death was that the camp operators so this magic empire girl scout council called their lawyers and insurance company first so this leads me to a few questions i can potentially understand calling lawyers because in my hope you're getting advice on how to handle this even when it comes to talking to the parents So I can potentially understand a call to a lawyer. Maybe. Insurance company? Don't know about that one. No. But my big question is why the cops weren't involved in this conversation. Yeah. Why was it up to the camp? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, in what order did they call, like when, like. That's so bizarre. Like, were the cops already on scene when you're talking? To your yeah, they would have had company? to have been because I know it was they were later in the day that the parents okay. found out. So the cops were so, there by 730. Yeah, they were there in like an hour and a half. So, the, yeah. So these people are calling their insurance company like while the police are still investigating the crime scene. Like, yeah, should probably. I, I think the police should have been the ones to do the notifications anyway. Like. Yeah, yeah. This is this is children. You should be there in person talking mm-hmm. to the parents. It should not yes. be a phone call no. from the camp. Oh god, yeah. You should be knocking on doors and and telling people in person and even if if you're able get there before the news is reporting it. You know, well, that again worse. is a 20 that's a 2023 mindset. You know, exactly. they didn't they didn't have, you know, an iPhone in their pocket to be able to, I don't know, get there. But Uh, unfortunately it gets a lot worse because it was on the evening news that night that they found out it wasn't an accident and that their children were murdered. (gasps) Oh, no one told them. Oh my God. Like that's something that just makes me very angry. Yeah. Because yeah. that is not how this should go. This should no. never happen to begin with. Because I would hope that people don't murder. And that if You're they right. do, that there are people to protect the victim's loved ones. And that just didn't right. happen here at yeah. all. No. 
It doesn't sound like it. I mean, to find out that your child was murdered from the news? Like, mm-hmm. how how was there not another follow-up call, you know? Like, after... Well, it gets the, a little I- better here, too. Okay. Wait, wait for your anger in just a moment. Yeah. Oh, so, no. Denise's mom couldn't initially be contacted because she was at work. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And she ended up, they, the camp ended up having to call the emergency contact on their phone, on, on their uh, sign up form. Uh huh. Which I believe was an aunt or a good family friend. Mm-hmm. And that's who they told that there was an accident that led to the death of Denise. Ugh. So then that family friend or aunt, I don't, I unfortunately don't remember which one had to call her parents and oh. notify them. Oh my God. That's horrific. Especially since it was Denise. Poor Denise. She didn't even want to be there. And then her poor yeah, mother. And I, I can't imagine making that phone call. No, like, her poor that's mother. Just... Like her I, mother. I, there was one time where I had to make like a kind of a death notification call um it was a co-worker of mine and i had to call corporate and let mm-hmm. them know and that mm-hmm. was such a different situation mm-hmm. and that was one of the hardest calls i've ever had to make yeah it's awful it's awful like and i just it's so it's even worse because her mom was probably waiting for a call like oh denise doesn't want to be here anymore she wants to come home like she, well, was and probably... she begged to call before going to bed. Exactly. Exactly. Like finding that out after the fact as well. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Like this, this case is such a hard one and I'm going to give you another trigger warning coming up here when mm-hmm. I come t- to the conversation of what had happened to these girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we're going to get a little bit into it now. Um, so if you need a trigger warning for this as well, but I'll give you another one when it's something uh, a little more severe. But during the initial investigation, they were able to determine that Denise was strangled because there was still a cord around her neck and that her hands were tied behind her. There was also a homemade gag that was in her mouth. And this wasn't homemade in the aspect of using something else to improvise as a gag this was sewn it was sewn to be a gag which is something that's very weird to Uh, me yeah that is very weird that is like talk about malice and a forethought yeah it's it's a very bizarre thing um but then she also had blood force trauma on the back of her head Mm -hmm. and then Lori and Michelle's cause of death were also ruled were ruled as blood force trauma. Mm-hmm. And based on the site where they were found and the interior of the tent, investigators believe that both Lori and Michelle were murdered inside the tent due to the amount of blood and blood splatter on the, mm-hmm. the walls of the tent. Mm-hmm. But they believe that Denise was killed where she was found on that trail. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And the timeline's a, it's a little difficult to determine. And I actually made a call earlier today to my friend who's the med- medical examiner 
um, Mm -hmm. where I grew up. And I just wanted to kind of get her thoughts on this. And she actually told me she can't really help. She doesn't. There's too many unknown details for her to help me narrow it down. Um, But one thing that we do know is that Denise's body temperature was around 70 degrees when they they found her and they were able Mm -hmm. to take her temperature. Mm -hmm. While the other girls' bodies were already in rigor. Mm. Okay. And so they can determine that, like, because Denise wasn't in rigor yet, it was more recent than the other two. But Mm -hmm. rigor has a pretty big window of when it can start. So mm-hmm. it could be a difference of 20 minutes. It could be a difference mm-hmm. of hours. And it right. just, there's so many factors that go into that, that my friend who's the medical examiner is like, yeah, I can't help you. I can't right. answer this question. Right. It sounds like nobody can, except to the extent of that they know Denise was killed last, which again, that's awful. That's awful. Yeah. And we have we have a handful of hours here. When you think about it, lights out at ten ten thirty. That's really the last confirmed time of truly saying yes. We saw the girls were alive. Mm-hmm. It's certainly possible that when Carlo woke up at the girls giggling at twelve thirty by the bathrooms, they were alive and fine. It's totally possible at one thirty when tent four was giggling that they were alive and fine. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's also possible they weren't. We just, we right. don't know. Right. We don't know the time that this all began. Exactly. We just know 6 a.m. was when they were found. Right. And because of Denise's temperature, it's assumed that it was not terribly long before that, right. that she was murdered. Right. So here comes... The other trigger warning. This is when I'm going to get into some more specifics. Um, So please do what you need to do. If you need to skip, please go ahead and skip. Y'all be careful because I looked ahead and I had to squeeze my eyes shut tight. It's a tough one. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're not going to want to hear this, Kelly, but you're you're going to. It's what happens in this case. Mm -hmm. But yes, trigger warning. Yeah. Yes, definite trigger warning. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk just more in detail. So Lori wasn't, but Michelle was also bound. Not in the same way that Denise was. Her, Denise's arms were behind her, but Michelle's was down at her side. So my assumption, and I, this is not like, clearly stated but my assumption is that she was kind of tied around her whole waist because her arms are just at her side right that's what it sounds like you can't really tie something you think yeah it'd have to be all the way around Mm -hmm. and while the all three girls were sexually assaulted both denise and michelle were raped and semen was found on their bodies So that that's just, it's hard. It's really hard to Uh, like comprehend all of that. They're they're just little girls. Little girls. Tiny little girls. Like, that somebody did this to. Like, Mm -hmm. somebody did this. I can't, it's, you know, it's one of those things where we talk 
and I think a lot of people talk about what makes them interested in true crime. And for me, maybe it's an overdeveloped sense of vengeance that makes me interested in this type of thing. But somebody, somebody did this, another human being to these little girls who would do this, you know? It's just me trying to work out who would do this. Yeah, and I think I'm I'm kind of along the same lines as you. I want to under I don't necessarily want to understand, but I'm curious to understand how somebody's brain can allow them to yeah. do this. Yeah, and I I can't uh, understand that. There's yeah, no way I, I can comprehend having the thought that would ever push me to commit a crime yeah. like this. Like you always have intrusive yeah. thoughts. That's yes. nature. That is right. truly everyone has them. Absolutely. Most people say, never act on them. Yeah. Why do some people do that? Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Everybody has intrusive thoughts, but what kind of pattern would make somebody have this similar intrusive thought so many times that they would finally be pushed to behave in this manner? Like, I can't. Well, once you hear the suspect, because I will tell you, there is a suspect, you're going to mm-hmm. ask that question over and over and over again. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, the theory on what had happened was that Lori was the first of the three to be killed. She was likely sleeping and had been hit on the head. Mm-hmm. And. The reason that this is the theory is because she had fewer wounds in comparison to Denise and Michelle. Mm -hmm. So -hmm. then at that point, Denise and Michelle would have woken up Mm -hmm. and they believe that Michelle was murdered next. And this is Mm -hmm. because of the amount of blood that was in the, the tent in comparison to then the wounds that Denise had. She did have blunt force trauma, but they did determine that she was strangled and that was her cause of death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so basically they're just evaluating like who had what defensive wounds here. I'm not sure if there were not like defensive wounds wasn't very specifically pointed out. Mm-hmm. I do think that there was probably some on both Michelle and Denise, but mm-hmm. I think they're reviewing the blunt force trauma was less on Lori. So that's why they mm-hmm. think she was asleep. And mm-hmm. so there could have been fighting, which caused more blunt force trauma mm-hmm. on Michelle. Yeah. But it's, again, it's, it's a theory. None of this is confirmed. Right. And then they think that the killer then took, Michelle and Lori and put them in their sleeping bags, carried them while walking Denise, who was gagged, potentially blindfolded, directly past the counselor tent. Uh, Like, it had to have been past the counselor tent to where they were found. Wow. Mm. Mm. And, you know, it it just makes you wonder, again, about the timeline. Like, when, Mm -hmm. you know, when was she shining the flashlight in front of the 
campsite? When did she hear the moaning in relation to this? You know, it just makes you wonder. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a, a couple things with that, the the sounds and the moaning that we'll talk about again in a little mm-hmm. bit here. And but it, what oh, it just ahead. makes you. Oh, no, I was going to say it just makes you think like this person had to have been watching. They had mm-hmm. to have been watching for them not to. have. They been absolutely that, like, were like that is so, so scary because you just I mean, it, I don't want to seem cavalier, but they're lucky that only three of these girls were murdered because mm-hmm. well especially it, like thinking about him looking up inside of the other yeah. tent, tent six we Absolutely. don't know what time that happened we just know what happened right and but i mean yeah he had to have made they... a decision in that moment not this one let's go check this next one right. who knows if he checked every single tent yes. and no one else woke up exactly and and who knows if he had the thought in his brain like oh well she's out there with a flashlight and she's checking maybe i should take her too Right. Or did he know that these were the youngest girls on the camp? Yeah. Did he look at other campsites? Like, we, we don't know any of these questions. Yeah. Yeah. But there is there was something that the investigator said that I found kind of interesting because it makes a whole lot of sense. But it's gut wrenching. So mm-hmm. I'll let you know that this is a very heartbreaking comment. But he he kind of made the comparison when he was talking about the theory of having to carry the two girls and walk Denise past the counselor tent, he kind of referred to how he would have had to have carried the two girls as putting them in their sleeping bags and carrying it over his shoulder like Santa. Uh, And I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say. God, it's heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And and that's, that's the only way that this person could have done it unless he made multiple trips which is possible but i doubt it with denise still being alive yeah yeah i agree but there there were a couple things that were found at the crime scene um there were some beer bottles a crowbar a large red six volt flashlight and it had this weird lens cover with a little pinhole in it oh And so this makes a lot of sense because that would cast a very small dim light. And so I'm, it's believed that that's what that dim light was that Carla was seeing and that the other counselors and campers were seeing. Mm -hmm. And then inside of the flashlight, I'm not sure how familiar you are with these old flashlights with those big square batteries. Yeah. But they've got like a handle (laughs) on them. They like wobble. Yeah. yeah. They're like just like this like cheap plastic, like it could mm-hmm. crack if you hit it too hard on accident. Yeah. Um yeah. but those nine volt I mean those six volt batteries kinda would get wobbly in there, especially if your coils got slightly bent or something. So inside mm-hmm. of this flashlight was a piece of newspaper that kind of kept that battery in place. God damn. So remember that. We'll we'll talk about yeah. that again later. Um, somebody, but there was somebody. also some eyeglasses. Oh, I know. Like, it's crazy. It's somebody thought just wait. ahead. Yeah. Well, so okay. So there's a couple of things in my head when it comes to the newspaper. So I think mm-hmm. it could be to keep 
the battery in place so that the light doesn't flash or anything. Mm-hmm. But I think with the paper on the top, that that might not that might be less of a concern. But if you know these old flashlights, because of that little space, even if the there's no like disconnection of the battery mm-hmm. from the the positive negative in there, so the flashlight never turns off, you can hear it rattle. Mm-hmm. Personally, that's my theory of why the paper was in there more likely. Mm-hmm. Um, because you pick up those flashlights, you hear a big rattle. There's a big piece of metal. Mm-hmm moving around inside of there yeah um but regardless newspaper inside of there to either prevent the light from going out or prevent the noise Mm -hmm. but then there were also a couple more things found there was a pair of eyeglasses a partial roll of electrical tape and some cord that matched what michelle and denise were tied up with So then moving to inside the tent, there was obviously a lot of blood and there were two fairly distinct footprints. One came from a combat combat style boot and another came from a sneaker. And it was it was in the blood on the floor of the tent on that wooden platform. Mm -hmm. Oh, And then something that was interesting during the autopsy was that it shows that the blows that caused the blunt force trauma were swung using both left and right hands. Hmm. So this, combined with the fact that there were two different footprints, potentially indicates two suspects. Yeah. But because there's absolutely no other information to go on, investigators couldn't conclude this, but it was something that was important for them to kind of keep in their head during their investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Keep that in the front of your mind. So as I I mentioned earlier, uh, Barbara and Richard Day got charter buses so that all of the girls could immediately go home and they never returned. The camp was immediately shut down, but there were also a handful of other camps in this area. There was another girl's camp that chose to not shut down, but instead they hired armed guards. And then there was a boys camp that was three miles away from Camp Scott. And they basically went on like normal, no armed guards. And 12 kids' parents came to take them home. Everyone else stayed at camp and just had a summer. Wow. And that, that surprises me. Yes, yeah, because that immediately kicks into my 2023 thinking, because I, so I I don't um, have much Girl Scout experience, um, however, I was very much raised in a scouting home. My my little brother is an Eagle Scout, and my father... I think you said your brother was, was really into yes. it, and your brother, your dad was a counselor, right? Yes, yes. So my yeah, my dad was a counselor for and and for all of his campouts and that kind of thing. There would always be like an adult there. So mm-hmm. uh, there was never the which you know it makes me think just now in saying it that may, maybe that was sort of a a more like maybe this is what caused that kind of thing to start to happen. 
Because it really doesn't make sense that, like, Girl Scout camps were having counselors be 15 to 18-year-olds and Boy Scouts are doing full adults. But, again, my well, little brother I think and my dad... Well, I think they're just very different like did your brother yeah. go to a boy scout camp like yes, this where mm-hmm. oh did he yeah so i was gonna oh, say yeah. like my camp like it, i feel like the way my camp was run and the way that camp scott was run are very similar even though they were 25 to 30 years apart time-wise from each other mm-hmm. so that yeah, is really no- interesting the boy scouts is a bit different mm-hmm. and that makes me wonder you know i'm like huh like how far back? I just has kind it of been? assumed they would have been the same. I don't have a brother or anything, so I never really had any experience with Boy Scouts. But... Yeah, because also though I'm I'm speaking from perspective of like my little brother and my dad were involved in scouting in like early two thousands, so that is ample time. Uh, that's after when I was in Girl happening. Scouts, though. It, I mean, it's ample time after this happening for them to be like an adult has to go, like right. So, yeah, it makes me wonder. And it could just be a maybe... different program. Like, they're Girl yeah. Scouts and Girl Scouts, they're not technically related to each other. No. Boy Scouts started as their own thing, completely separate. And then Girl mm-hmm. Scouts came in years later. Right. You're right. Yeah. So, it just could just be differences in the organizations. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But that still blows my mind. Because... But again, right. I'm thinking in like 2023, like, I'm like, wow, only 12 kids' parents came to take them home. But again, it's 1977. Well, I'm just thinking like in general, and you like the time difference is a huge point, but I'm thinking in general, three miles away, three right. children were very brutally murdered mm-hmm. while doing the same exact thing my sons are doing. <laughs> right. Absolutely not. Like, Absolutely. I don't, I, I think that that thought potentially could not have any sort of relation to it being like 50 years later or si- close to 60 years later at this point. Yeah. I, wow. That's mind blowing. Like, mm-hmm. oh God. But investigators, they brought in three tracking dogs. And these dogs actually were able to get a scent and determine the pathing of the murderer or murderers, because we're still very unsure. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that whoever did this actually entered the campsite through the main trail, which, as mm-hmm. we, we said earlier, had to have gone by the counselor's tent. Wow. And they walked directly past that. And then... They had to pass every other tent to get to tent seven. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a lot. That's, that, that's a yeah. lot of risk. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you could potentially have a lot of witnesses here. Mm-hmm. And, and he clearly, concerned. there were witnesses. Like how many mm-hmm. reports did we have of people seeing something weird that seems to all be attributed to this incident. Mm -hmm. And also investigators, they had the, that platform, that big wooden platform of the tent airlifted out of the campsite, 
so that it can be examined in a lab. And most specifically, those footprints can be looked at. Okay, well, we're starting to get, again, get the cops involved, you know? Like... And I will say, like, the cops, especially watching the that documentary on Hulu, mm-hmm. the cops, they immediately were just heartbroken. Oh, and God, I yeah. kind of get this sense that that kind of clouded mm. their thinking. Not necessarily mm-hmm. in the way of them wanting to, like, pin it on anyone first person they get their hands on, they want to pin it on them. I think it clouded mm-hmm. their brain from being able to focus on a lot of the details mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. hard yeah like it is their job it's what they're supposed to do but emotions still come into it absolutely absolutely like you're not in a, you're not an emotionless monolith sociopath who is just like oh three little girls got murdered okay i'm gonna go about my day like i imagine this has to have been horrible for them yeah, there, there's a ton of photos because those reporters were on site so quick. There's a ton of photos of the police in the area. Mm-hmm. And every single photo, every single cop is like staring at the ground and just looks devastated. Ugh, yeah. And like I can't imagine. We've said that how many times in this episode now, but this is this is such a hard one. Yeah. I can't imagine that. Like, you're called into work. Like, you need to get in here right now. And you're like, okay, uh, you know, what could it be? And you find this. Like, not even your wildest, horrible, intrusive thought would you be thinking something like this happened. Well, we don't have the transcript of the 911 call. But I don't think the 911 call said foul play or murder. So... Mm -hmm. I think that the cops were probably showing up knowing that there were girls who were dead, but probably assuming it was an accident. And then that's what you see. Well, that's what, and that's what you said too, that like they initially called 911 before they had gone in to tent seven and seen. No, they, the counselors had gone in, but I just don't know if the counselors immediately recognized that there was mm. blood. They may have just like glanced, yeah. no bu- no kids are in there, and run out. Because I will say right. from my experience in those similar tents, it's dark inside of mm. them. Okay. It Because like there's, it's it's solid canvas. There's not windows or anything. So you're opening the flap. That's the only light yeah. you're really getting in there. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said that the, the tops of those tents too were reinforced with another layer so the rain couldn't get Yeah, there's like two oh, thick sense. layers of canvas. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And like they're big tents, but... It makes sense that you could peek yeah. in and see no one's there, but you might not see, oh my God, it's, you know, loaded with blood. Exactly. And I never saw anything reported saying these girls immediately said there was blood, which is a reason right. why I'm just not sure if they saw it or not. And I can kind yeah. of understand them not seeing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- then throughout this investigation, a few counselors were interviewed and that they they had mentioned to investigators that they noticed after all of the kids had arrived that previous day that some items were stolen from their tents. And they specifically noted that another pair of eyeglasses were stolen. 
Um, so I, I should have counted what? how many pairs at this point, but yeah. that's a lot of pairs of eyeglasses over we're these couple a, of months. We're up to at least two or three pairs now. Like it's, it's enough that I, when you just said that another pair of eyeglasses was taken, I was like, what sort it's of weird. strange, fi- what a strange fixation. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, but then also a denim purse was stolen and both of these items were taken out of the Kiowa site. Wow. So everything was, everyone was just wanting to come together, Mm -hmm. get this solved as quickly as they possibly can, Mm -hmm. at at least almost everyone. So the, the governor of Oklahoma at the time, he wanted to call in the National Guard. He wanted extra help on this case. He wanted as many eyes as possible. But the sheriff, Sheriff Weaver didn't allow it what i don't know why it like it that will not make sense to me i feel like this is the type of case where it's like bring as many people who are experts in investigation in as possible yeah but not for some reason he said no if not now when if not now when like and one thing that he did was he chose to set up a hotline, which I agree with. I think a hotline is mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. But his hopes in this hotline were that the killer might call in and actually confess. Mm. Mm. And, mm. well, that's not an unheard of thing at all. Yeah. No. No. But also, I, I think that's... that, like, you could have done both. <laughs> yeah. That's a slim, yeah, that's a slim kind of notion to go on and to say oh we don't need the national guard because we set up a hotline like what yeah i will give him some little some credit in the future here because i don't think he is a bad sheriff but i do i do think he should have brought in the national guard right you could have just like you just said you could have done both exactly you could have done both and so this is this is some information that potentially actually could have come in through this hotline. I'm not entirely sure. I never saw it mm-hmm. stated how this information came to light. But mm-hmm. they police were talking to five boys that were from that boys camp that was three miles from Camp Scott. Mm-hmm. And these boys had said that there was a teenager who just kind of showed up at their camp one day. And they described mm. him as pale and kind of scrawny. And apparently he came in, had a meal with all the other boys, didn't say a word, was just silent the whole time. Mm. But then later that day, he stole an axe, a hunting knife and some food and just left. Mm. Like no one knows where he went. No one knows who he was. Yeah. And... This lead ended up not going anywhere. No one still to this day really knows who this wow. kid was. Um, right. But that's such a bizarre occurrence after mm-hmm. all of this had happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, worth, worth interviewing, worth hearing, you know, but exactly. also it sounds like I, I'm not surprised that this lead may not have gone anywhere because it sounds like it doesn't really fit the profile of who they were looking mm-hmm. for. I agree. But it, it's, uh, like as you said, it's something that you mm-hmm. do need to follow up on. If they yeah. didn't, I would have been more yeah. upset with some of this investigation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But they, yeah, they took the statement. They they pursued it. 
to its what sounds like its end, but who knows? It is bizarre. Like you said. Yeah, we, we still don't know who the boy was. Like he could have been a runaway, he could have mm-hmm. been escaping something that was just completely different. Like we, we just yeah. we don't know. Hopefully he's he's fine. Yeah. But the next lead that was discovered was because of the rope and the tape that was found at the scene. They actually determined that both of these items came from a nearby ranch owner named Jack Schroff. And he had multiple items stolen from his ranch, which included the rope and the tape. And investigators had discovered that there was a fire at a pond that is on his property that Schroff says he didn't light himself. So that's something weird. And it was very quick that the police actually had the ability to check his alibi. He was, he was out of town when the murders Mm -hmm. happened. So it seemed pretty apparent early on that he had no involvement and he was telling the truth about these items being stolen and not lighting this fire. Mm -hmm. But and at the same time, he also said, I'll sit down for a polygraph. Like, I have no issue. Do what you need right. to do to clear okay. me to look at somebody else, essentially. Right. Right. He was like, but, yeah, stuff was stolen. Like, I feel like I would here. be the same way, even though, like, I don't think I would ever take a polygraph. I feel yeah. like as long as I have, like, I would also be the, a person to lawyer up quickly. Absolutely. I'd be like, I'd be like, I, I have an alibi, I, but also I'm going to call a lawyer exactly and i would want to like tell a lawyer like i had nothing to do with this please let me tell them everything and then hopefully Mm -hmm. they'll allow me but absolutely regardless um before they were able to like document him being fully cleared and they were still checking his alibi the papers ran with this and they actually labeled him quote-unquote a slayer in a headline Oh oh my gosh So, obviously, these papers needed to print a retraction after he was cleared. But it seemed like the papers wanted to blame anyone and everyone for this. Because, like, it's Mm. tragic. Yeah. But they were kind of what we were talking about earlier with nature explanations versus somebody did this, they need to be held accountable. The papers were were running with that second mindset. Mm Mm-hmm. So at this point, it really seemed like they were running out of suspects. And this is where Sheriff Weaver kind of steps back up and redeems himself from denying the National Guard from coming into this case. Mm-hmm. He brought forward another suspect, Gene Leroy Hart. And Hart was known in the area and he was a wanted fugitive. He had escaped from prison four years earlier and was still on the run. Wow. And he was in prison because in 1966, he was convicted of attempted murder of two young women in Locust Grove, the same town as Camp Scott. Wow. He had kidnapped these two teenagers. Well, they were like late teens, early 20s. Um, but they were, it was two young women who were pregnant and they, he kidnapped both of them, raped and sodomized them. Then he took them to another location where he tied them up 
and placed duct tape on their nose and mouth and literally left them to die. Wow. Like, I'll just... Uh, yeah. There's no words for how awful that is. Yeah. Yeah. Two young pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, one of them had the ability to free herself and then the other one. So they both did survive. And that's why they were charged. He was charged with attempted murder. Wow. But one really, really interesting part of this is that both girls wore eyeglasses and at times while he was driving them around after kidnapping them, he would take their eyeglasses and put them on himself. Wow. So it, it, this is Gene Leroy Hart. Okay, so he's confirmed to have a, another strange fixation with eyeglasses. That It's weird. Like, I don't understand it. But yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, this is the... The eyeglasses, to me, are the thing that kind of weaves this idea all together. Mm-hmm. So, for this crime, Hart was sentenced to 10 years, but he only served two years and four months before he was paroled. Ay. Come on, yeah. guys. We're paroling people who kidnap young pregnant women? Yeah, like, and only 10 years. Yeah, yeah. 10 years. I would say 10 years. This comes to the argument of, like, I don't think uh, attempted murder should have a different sentence than murder. If you're trying to murder them, you just didn't succeed, but you had the same end goal. Like, why why do they get less time for attempted murder versus murder? But that's a whole other conversation I can go on a rant about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I We could both jump up on our soapboxes and talk about that. Um, I brought that up to my because, parents recently and they never kind of thought of that. I just like, I went off on my parents oh, <laughs> and mean, they just I, sat silent listening to me. Well, I would expect like, again, maybe this is just a 2023 mindset, but I would expect at least 10 years per person that you kidnapped. Yeah. You should be. Well, it's, it's attempted murder kidnap mm-hmm. and rape rape yes it's, it exactly. should be at least three separate charges yeah really six yeah. because it's three for each yeah yeah so yeah that he got paroled but yeah let's let's go into a little bit of his life before he was a criminal he grew up in locust grove his birthday is actually the day before mine november 27th but he was born in 1943. I'm happy to say I was born many years after that. Um, We're both extremely youthful. Yes. Uh, But when he was a teenager, he was kind of considered a local football hero. Mm -hmm. And he was of Cherokee descent. He he grew up with his mom and his his dad just really wasn't in his life from the few things that I've read, because it was kind of hard to, to, find some things on his early life but it seemed mm-hmm. like he had a good relationship with his mom he since he was a local football star he actually received a scholarship to play football in college but he ended up turning it down and he eventually got married and had a son huh. and then he uh chose to 
pick up two yeah. pregnant women and essentially, in my opinion, torture them and leave them for dead. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. It's insane. So after Hart was paroled, he chose not to end his criminal career. He started to now rob homes. Mm-hmm. And then within 24 hours, he robbed three homes, the last of which just happened to be the home of a cop. Oh. I don't know if he knew this. I don't. I. It just it happened to be, I think. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, like it. But he got caught for this one. And the other two home robberies actually weren't even reported. They found evidence of these robberies in his car. And that's how it came forward that he robbed these other two homes. Wow. So this goes to trial because he obviously violated parole by committing more crimes. um, In addition to committing the three robberies. And this time he was sentenced to, I believe it was specifically 308, but over 300 years of time. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that I I think the there are a few that articles sounds- that kind of said like the judge looked at his previous crimes, and yeah. since he was committing more as a parolee, he just yeah. gave him as much as he can because he felt like it was warranted based on his violent nature from the previous crimes. Absolutely, absolutely agree. But now, after arriving in prison for the second time, he somehow escaped. I don't know how. Just reports that he escaped. Um, he was yeah. caught very quickly. Um, it sounds like it was the same day or within a couple days that he was caught. Mm. But that didn't stop him. Mm. He escaped a second time. He uh, sawed through the bars of his cell with a hacksaw. Uh, how, like, how? How? That's, yeah. <laughs> How? How did he get his hands on one? And I also yeah. feel like so like sawing through the bars of a cell yeah. should be a whole lot more difficult and a hacksaw shouldn't cut it. But yeah. it did. Well, I guess <laughs> so. Yeah. So this was in 1973 when he escaped the second time. Mm-hmm. And these murders happened in 1977. Mm-hmm. So he was out for four years by the time mm-hmm. these murders happened and no one knew where he was. Wow. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Like it it's just mind blowing. That's incredible. You're on the he's on the run for 4 years like well and they believed that he was in the general area. Yeah, exactly. This whole time they don't think he left this general space around the camp and where he grew right. up. But then let's let's go back a little bit to this specific investigation. On June 22nd, 10 days after the first day of camp, two brothers were hunting and they found this kind of cave cellar type of place. It was it's technically a cellar, but it looks like a cave. It was it was built mm-hmm. into the edge of this hill. Mm-hmm. Um And it was about a mile from Camp Scott. And Mm -hmm. it turns out this cellar was also on the edge of Hart's mother's property. 
So he grew up one mile from Camp Scott. Wow. Yeah. And these brothers went in to this little cellar and they saw a couple things that they thought was weird. So they immediately called the police and didn't really touch anything else. Let the police do an investigation. And some of the things that they found inside of the cellar were some photos, a flashlight cover. I'm assuming that means kind of like the bag of flashlight might come in when you buy it. Mm-hmm. Or some eyeglasses and a newspaper. Uh, so as we so talked about is... earlier. Yeah. I was going to say, so this is very much connected to this case. Like, there's no way this isn't the area where the killer is. Yeah. And, like, there's only really technically one thing that officially ties this cave or the cellar to the camp. Mm -hmm. And it is that newspaper, very specifically. Because they were Mm -hmm. able to figure out that the piece that was in that flashlight that they found at the murder scene came from that paper in that cellar. Same paper, same date, one page was missing. Okay. Yep. Wow. But now the thing is, yes, it's on Hart's mother's property, but does this then tie Hart to the essentially abandoned cellar? Right. So there's a lot of things that, like, things kind of piece together, but they kind of don't. There needs to be more in the middle there. Right. You need more. So one of those things um, that adds that little bit more is the photos that were found in this cellar. Mm -hmm. They were determined to have been wedding photos that were taken by a guard at one of the prisons that Hart was doing time in. So this guard worked as a wedding photographer on the side. And he would then bring in the film and have the prisoners develop the photos in the prison darkroom. Wow. And it looks like Hart either made copies or stole some of the photos. And that's what was found in that cellar. Wow. So it's like a very interesting, super random tie-in. To put mm-hmm. him in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine being that guard and being like, I know those photos. I know exactly. Imagine being that couple that got married. Oh, like God. learning that your photos <gasps> were, were stolen in. by this criminal who did these truly terrible things. Yeah. But then there's there was another cave that was kind of nearby. And there was some graffitis on the inside walls of this cave that wrote, The killer was here. Bye bye, fools. 77617. Wow. So that's just weird. It is weird. I thought that this, like seeing this, like I thought that it was like a big old rumor that happened. But no, this is real. They really found this I saw I some thought... reports of this. I kind of thought it was a rumor too, but during my research, mm-hmm. I saw it said a few times. Yep. So I chose to leave it in here. Um, yeah. I've also yeah. heard a few people talk about the way that 77617 is written because most people assume it's a date 
as yeah. June 17th, 1977. But a lot of people say, oh, this is the, the European way of, of writing mm-hmm. a date. In my experience, it would be 17677. Yeah. Because I yeah, think exactly. it's the day, were... the month, and then the year. So yeah, it would I don't flipped. know. Maybe there's an, other areas of the world that write it this way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I think maybe. that's an interesting call out. It is interesting. It is interesting because it's not technically the European way of writing the date. Exactly. I think like, it, I'm pretty it, sure it's date, month, year. Yeah. It seems like somebody was maybe trying for that and then messed it up. Someone said military in some of the, the comments I've seen. I don't know that. I have absolutely no idea how military dates are written and if they're written differently. Um, so if somebody knows, let us know because that, that it would be yeah. interesting to me. But another thing that's interesting about it is... These girls weren't murdered on June 17th. They were murdered on June 12th, early morning of the 13th. Mm-hmm. But then there's the thought, like, maybe whoever wrote this as the killer was in that cave on the 17th. So they put that yeah. day's date. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we don't know. I mean, it's just that's what I would. That's that's what I would assume. Honestly. That's my assumption as well. What, yeah. There's no other reason that I can understand why a different date would have been written unless they confused the dates, which yeah. I don't know what's going through this guy's head. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything could be. We don't know. Yeah. But eventually, 10 months later, Hart was finally caught. Mm. So this lead came in, I believe, on the tip line. I'm not entirely sure, but I believe it was through the tip line. Um, and the tip said that it was a Cherokee medicine man that was basically allowing him to stay at his cabin. Mm-hmm. But that this Cherokee medicine man, he was not named, but that he recently had a brother who died. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, kind of bizarrely worded tip. But what the police did is they started going through obituaries Mm. and they found one. Wow. Um, I'm not going to name his name because I I don't know if he was willingly allowing Hart to stay there or if he kind of didn't know. Um, I did find his name in reports. If you watch the documentary, it will tell you. Um, Mm -hmm. But he's not really relevant to this case. All that we need to know is that that's where Hart was found. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously he was charged with these murders. I think that there's enough evidence to determine that mm-hmm. that's uh, it, it was him at fault. Mm-hmm. But it was a little bit of time. It was almost a year before uh, this went to trial. It sounds like this trial was pretty rough. And there were some articles that really gave a couple sentence breakdown of this trial. So I tried to like piece together a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, so- it doesn't sound good. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he got a public defender or he hired his own lawyers, but either way, they, they were good. Uh. And they argued that the evidence was circumstantial. And that mm-hmm. part, like some of the evidence being circumstantial led to the other evidence being discredited. Hmm. And so they said that some of the duct tape that was used did not actually belong or lead to Hart. Mm-hmm. 
And remember, this is 1978 at this point that this is happening. Testing is not what it is nowadays. So I don't think they had the ability to test that as conclusively as we could now. Um, And since the police couldn't prove that he had it in his possession, that's something that kind of just fell through the cracks in this trial. And they also made a lot of really strong allegations about racial profiling because Hart was Cherokee Native American. Uh And there was a lot of worry before he was even identified as a suspect that it would be a native that would be at fault for these crimes. And that created a lot of news, a lot of backlash in the news. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was definitely something that was brought up a lot during trial. And then the, one of the other big things is that when Hart escaped prison for the second time, Sheriff Warren was the sheriff when he escaped. So there's kind of the belief that Sheriff Warren had something extra out for him because he wanted him back in prison since he kind of escaped on his watch. Because mm-hmm. Sheriff Warren was the one who brought him up as a suspect. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so lastly was the semen that was found at the scene. Uh, DNA testing was not even close to its infancy yet at this point. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was known was that Hart actually had a vasectomy and he wouldn't have produced semen. Mm-hmm. So that is something that where it's like, okay, well, semen was found at the scene. It obviously couldn't have been Hart. Um, but nowadays we where we very much well know that vasectomies can be reversed. They can revert back to their natural state. Like it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a that's it. There's no way ever possibly in the future that yeah. you'd be able to produce semen. Right. And I mean, they have two different sets of footprints. Well, during the investigation, I actually forgot to mention this earlier. I believe one of the, it was the sneaker proved to be one of the investigators. Oh, Um, And it was just because the scene wasn't super well secured secured from the very beginning. Um, Thank you for reminding me. I did forget to mention that earlier. Okay. uh, No, I was just still on the thing like, well, it could have been him and another person who could. Yeah, they did determine it was, like, if one person was involved in this um, because of that. Um, I believe Mm -hmm. at one point, I didn't mention it earlier either, a partial handprint was found in the tent as well, and that was another investigator. Um, Okay. So there there were a couple things that clearly weren't, like, cleaned up nicely and taken care of during the investigation. Yeah, poorly secured. Well, that also leads to more doubt during his trial. Yes, exactly. This really kind of stuck with the jury and they acquitted him. Uh, So this doesn't mean that he's a free man because he still escaped from prison from a 300 plus year sentence. Um, (laughs) But he, he was not officially held accountable for these murders. Mm -hmm. And so he goes back to prison But then on June 4th, 1979, about a year after that arrest, he died of a heart attack at age 35. Mm. Apparently he was just on the the prison yard working out 
lifting some weights and running, and he, he dropped dead of a heart attack. Hmm. I don't um, know if I like that. I, you, I'm not sure if you've read my next sentence in my script here, and it's like, <laughs> obviously, we're really happy that he's not around and he can't do this to anybody else. Um, yeah. But he didn't be held accountable for his truly horrific crimes. He was barely in prison for that first crime. And Mm -hmm. then he escaped from prison and then died within a year. Mm. I hate that. Yeah. (laughs) So that like, I knew that you would have the same view as me where it's just like, Uh we wish that he was properly held accountable for the terrible things that he did. But I'm also relieved that no one else will be hurt by him. Absolutely. He was clearly a violent and horrible person, regardless of whether or not he was acquitted of this, which I, uh, you know, the evidence is circumstantial. It is a tough one to prove, but he was clearly an awful, awful, awful man. Yes. And further in into more of modern day time at this point, in 2019, just a few years ago, the mm-hmm. DNA was tested again. Well, maybe mm-hmm. probably for the first time. Mm-hmm. In 2022, they announced that results had come back from this DNA testing and that it was determined that Hart was likely the murderer. Mm. And the way that it's worded is, is pretty interesting. Um, they say that they can't technically close the case because the DNA testing was not fully conclusive but this mm-hmm. testing had the ability to rule out other potential suspects but it didn't mm-hmm. have the ability to rule out heart mm-hmm. so like basically anyone else they had the potential of considering since mm-hmm. 1977 it's like okay not them we can conclusively right. say that but it wasn't enough of a like perfect match for heart but it had it did not rule him out like it did the others. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people really do believe that, yes, it, it was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can't close the case because it's not conclusive. Yeah. So there's only a little bit left here. I know we've been recording for a very long time, but uh, there's one other really big thing I do want to talk about here. And we're going to backtrack a little bit back to 1977 again. When Lori and Denise's parents, they choose, chose to sue Magic Empire Girl Scout Council, claiming negligence on Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. Because they're the ones who ran Camp Scott. Mm-hmm. They said that they didn't provide ad- uh, adequate safety measures or supervision for their children. And mm-hmm. in their claim, they made it very clear that this was not in relation to the Girl Scout organization. This was specifically to that company itself because they mm-hmm. ran the, that specific camp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in this lawsuit, they were asking for $3 million. And unfortunately this went on for years. Oh God. Um, by 1979, $500,000 was added to the lawsuit mm-hmm. to make it 3.5 million. Mm-hmm. And many people who worked at the camp, including law enforcement, testified on behalf of the f- victims' families. Mm-hmm. 
But unfortunately, in spring of 1985, almost Ugh. 10 years after this lawsuit was filed, the jury ruled in favor of the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council. So the families didn't get anything from this lawsuit. That doesn't make any sense to me. I, I there was I saw a lot of news clippings um from this. There there's a website, uh girlscoutmurders.com, um, which is where I got a lot of my information for this case. Um, but they actually had photos of news clippings, which is kind of what I read to get this information. So mm-hmm. I'm interested to see more of an explanation than a, a short blurb article about why they didn't win this case. Um, but it, it really does make me think back to my time at camp because it was operating essentially the same way. If, if the families of the victims won the camp that I went to probably would have been completely different Mm -hmm. than it was. Yeah. And I will say, I never felt unsafe at my camp ever, Mm -hmm. but also we're all like, even thinking back to the early 2000s to 2023 now mindsets were so different when it comes to crime and danger at that point Mm -hmm. so yeah i i don't it's hard to put like a a specific explanation to it because i think today if if a girl were to go to girl scout camp today it'd probably be very different than when i went 20 years ago yeah um so just now, to the conclusion of 2023, I, I have a strong assumption that Hart was the murderer, even though it's mm-hmm. not proven. Um, I think uh, yeah. most people are on this same page. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. I also really kind of think this case will never be fully closed unless there's a different way to test the evidence. Because mm-hmm. we're not going to find any new evidence now. Right. But... yeah. If there's a new way in the future to test things to make it more conclusive, I think that's the only possibility this case will ever be officially closed. Yeah, because right now it's just, you know, well, we can't rule them out. And that's significant in itself, but Mm -hmm. it's still just we can't rule them out. Not like he did it. And like going back and, and really kind of thinking about all of this, and thinking about my time at camp, I I wanted to make a phone call to my mom just to see if she can help refresh my memory on anything. If there was anything I forgot that, that she could kind of jump in on. And she mm-hmm. didn't know about this case at all. Oh, wow. And mm-hmm. when I started to like very briefly explain it, she's like, I never would have sent you to camp if I had known this. I'm like, wow. I get it. We, we mentioned yeah. this earlier, like I get parents wanting to be protective and take their kid home if they don't want to be there or tell mm-hmm. them that they don't have to go. And yeah. I, I've listened to a lot of other podcasts that have said that same thing. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just want to put my own little two cents here in at the end. I'm so glad my mom sent me to camp. I had so much fun. And... Like I said, I get it. You want to protect your children. I think things nowadays, 2023, are completely different than they were when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. especially back down to 1977. But I had so much fun. And 
I think that this was so unlikely and such a rare occurrence mm-hmm. that it like obviously it should be thought about safety should always be thought about but mm-hmm. it's you you can't necessarily use that as an excuse of yes that that is an actual common risk if my kids mm-hmm. go to camp mm-hmm. um And so, like, I think that, like, any parent sending their kid to camp should look into what safety measures there are. And I hope that there are some changes when it comes to the age of the counselors and that sort of stuff. Because my counselors, they were young. They were 15, 16 Mm -hmm. years old, from my memory. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think a kid should be denied camp if they really want to go. Like, I just hope that there are better safety measures. Yeah, absolutely. But that's all I got. Do you have any thoughts? Um, just that I think you're right. It's it's not something that you could say, oh, this is a common occurrence. I should bar my child from this kind of experience. And, you know, I'm glad because, like I said, I came from a household where scouting was very much in the forefront. And my brother did very much camp a lot. But also it was always in the company of an adult. So I just think that you're right, that no matter what, you should just check out what kind of safety measures a camp has and, you know, just factor that into your decision and also factor into your decision whether or not your child wants to go to this camp. Yeah. And that's a big thing, too. I never was that kid where it's like I got super homesick from my parents. I'm very, very close with my parents, but I think I always understood that I'm always going to go back home to them. Yeah. Like this was temporary being separated. So it Mm -hmm. never bothered me not being home. Like me going to camp, I'm pretty sure was the longest time I'd ever been away from my parents until that point. Um, Mm -hmm. But I always said like, okay. And my camp was only a week too. But I'm like, Mm -hmm. in a week, I'm going to be back home in my own bed with my parents. Like fine. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there I understand there are kids who are not like that. I feel like I'm a little more on the rare end mm-hmm. of that mindset than a lot of other kids. No, I was very much like take me home. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was not at all. I was not a camper. I just knew I'd always end up back home. In the mm-hmm. end of it, like I I'm going back home to my parents. It just Right. Going to be a week. It it seems yeah, it just seems like uh natural like of course i'll go home to my parents but it's so heartbreaking that like these little little girls did not yeah and denise wanting to Uh, so bad not even wanting to get on that bus so tragic like i can't imagine what her mother went through and being dragged through this huge lawsuit for almost a decade that comes to nothing like that's not right it's not right yeah, I didn't put it in here um, just because this is already such a long episode, but I'll say it here. If people are still listening, here you go. Here's another little thing. Um, but it adds to the tragedy. Unfortunately, within the same year of Denise's murder, her father died of a heart attack. Ugh. So oh, that God. poor mother lost yeah. two people in her life. And yeah. I can't remember if she had a sibling as well, but I feel like she did. I think she had a brother who was five. Wow. And to Um, just have to go on 
to yeah. go on. She's interviewed in the the documentary that's on Hulu, which we'll we'll link in our notes. Um, and you just you feel for her, you really do. Yeah. Her her and um, Lori Farmer's parents were interviewed for the documentary. These poor people. But that is all that we have for today. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've gotten into this like two hour plus mark, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, so thank you for listening to Have You Heard About This Case. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help some other people find it. And then you can like us on Instagram at Have You Heard About This Case Pod or on TikTok at H-Y-H-A-T-C. And lastly, you can also email us at Have You Heard About This Case at gmail.com. Thank you. And we'll talk to you later. Bye.